Last Handful of Clover, a novel by Wes Mongo Jolly, read by the author. Book Three, The Stone in the Stream. Chapter Seven, Squirrels in a Tree. June 16th, 3.31 a.m. KUTV went off the air after two stuttering flashes of the lights, plunging the studio into a blackness so thick it could have been at the bottom of the ocean. Before Morgan's eyes could adjust to the darkness, the emergency lighting kicked in, and she held her breath in the meager glow, waiting for the propane-powered generators on the roof to take over. If it worked as advertised, they would have full power in the studio in about ten seconds. She counted off the seconds in a whisper, and noted in the gloom that everyone else in the studio was doing the same thing, eyes cast heavenward, like they were waiting for an angel to descend and save them. But after ten seconds, the emergency lighting remained, and there was no sign of fresh power in the silent studio. After thirty seconds, she looked around the room and saw that everyone understood. So, no generator, Rhonda asked. It's supposed to kick in automatically and give us power for at least twelve hours. Doesn't look like that's going to happen, Levi said. Well, that's it, Morgan thought. One minute we're talking into cameras and reporting what meager news we have, and a minute later it's all over. Somehow, she knew that the station was off the air for good. The handful of remaining reporters and staff in the studio looked at each other in the dim yellow light and then quietly put down their papers and walked away from the cameras. Perhaps it's just as well, Morgan thought. The power in the downtown area had been among the last to go, and at this point she suspected the only people still able to get their broadcast had been those with batteries or generators. If there was ever an illustration of screaming into the void, it was what they had been doing for the better part of the last hour. She didn't waste any time lamenting the loss of their broadcast. There had been precious little left to report anyway. But what concerned her the most was that the banks of raid arrays in the computer room that had been recording their broadcast all evening had also sputtered to a halt. Even if no one had been tuning in, she had consoled herself knowing that they had been creating a historical record of the city's collapse. She hoped that one day those digital records would stand as a memorial to what they had gone through. If this city was destined to die, they owed at least that much to history. And, just maybe, those recordings could help whoever survived to understand what had happened here. And yet, her journalistic instincts refused to die. Five minutes later, she had pulled the half-dozen remaining reporters and producers together into a huddle around the anchor desk. Listen, she said, just because we can no longer report the news, that doesn't absolve us from a responsibility for gathering it. We have to keep going. We have to keep taking pictures, taking notes. We have to keep gathering information any way we can and make sure it's preserved. 
Perhaps one day our work will be useful to whoever is tasked with figuring out what happened here. What do you want to do? Wiggins asked, sounding dubious to say the least. I say we get out of this building. Not permanently, but, but we do what we're trained to do. Go out, try to document what we see, and, and then come back here. We'll download the pictures from our phones to the laptops. We'll collate our notes. We'll save things to memory sticks. We'll keep doing what we're trained to do. What we've promised the city will do. To her relief, a sense of purpose was just what the frightened, beaten-down staff needed. And even Buck Jones, the timid weatherman with the swollen jaw, volunteered to go out on the first fact-finding mission. Where are Phil and Stan? Morgan asked. We should get them out there, too. That is, if Stan's feeling up to it. The surrounding faces looked sheepish. They're locked up in Larry's office, Rhonda said. Morgan glanced at the station manager, and he nodded. I have the key. But after they went nuts earlier, we didn't think either of them should be out here. Who knows if they're going to lose it again? Morgan had barely given a thought to Phil and Stan for the last couple of hours, as she'd been trying to juggle the information and rumors she'd been receiving out on the anchor desk. And suddenly she felt very guilty for not worrying more about her friend and cameraman. Is Stan okay? Morgan, I don't know, Rhonda said, guilt reflected in her eyes as well. They're both in Larry's office. I don't think anybody's checked in on them lately. To be honest, I think we're all afraid to go in there. Suddenly, what Stan had told her about his experience flashed through her mind. What had he said? I remember grabbing the girl, it said, except it wasn't me doing it. Somebody else had a hold of her. She had to talk to Stan, and she promised herself she would. But right now, they still had work to do. She started breaking the group of reporters and anchors into teams of two and sending everyone else to look for flashlights. When I get back, I'll check on Stan, she promised herself. He probably needs the rest, and we can do this without him. The elevators no longer functioned, of course, and the stairwells quickly lost their emergency lighting and ventilation, becoming as dark and fetid as a mine shaft. Getting down the twenty floors to the street below would be a cumbersome and frightening trip, even with flashlights. Nevertheless, at 3.25 a.m., five different teams of reporters and photographers went out into the darkness, promising to be back in the studio by 5.30. They would take what pictures they could in the time they had, record voice notes, and then return to the newsroom before the juice in their cell phones failed. Only three of those five teams returned. And what they brought back was terrifying. Morgan and her partner, Martha Gillespie, were the ones who discovered a slaughter that had happened earlier in the evening just a few blocks from their studios. The pictures that the pair took of the bodies piled up outside of the City Creek Center looked like something out of a war crimes documentary. Morgan prided herself on being a hard-nosed reporter and little phased her. But the sight of those bodies and the still acrid scent of blood and the beginnings of decay in the air 
made her turn away and vomit. Once they had their photos, she and Martha rushed back to the Wells Fargo building. Twenty minutes later, a second team returned, reporting that they had got as far as the Capitol and that there didn't appear to be anyone there. The building was deserted. Wherever the governor, the mayor, and the emergency managers had gone, they had done so some hours before. The third team to return reported that a group of survivors just to the east had holed up in a car dealership, and when the reporters had tried to approach them, a man in combat fatigues and a girl no older than twelve opened fire. They fled, but all either of them could add to the story was that the dealership appeared to be filled with crying children. At the agreed-upon deadline of 5.30, three teams had made it back to the 21st floor. What happened to the other two teams? Morgan doubted they would ever know. But their successful forays had been valuable. Besides gathering more facts for posterity, their trips down the dark stairwell had shown them that their building had become its own little island amid the chaos. The Wells Fargo building was the tallest skyscraper in downtown Salt Lake City. The building had 24 stories, and dozens of companies besides the bank employees called the building home. On their way to and from the building, the reporters learned that many of the employees in those companies, especially the younger and unattached, had stayed when the violence escalated the previous afternoon. They had hunkered down and put their faith in the security forces that were charged with protecting the building. But with the power now out, the reporters learned, the security guards had either all fled or had barricaded themselves into positions of relative safety. As they trooped with flashlights up and down the deserted stairwell, Morgan's teams discovered that the lower floors were now completely unguarded and refugees from the street had taken over some of the empty floors and office suites. Many of the lower floors were now isolated. The workers and refugees on those floors had blocked off the stairwells with furniture and whatever else they had available. The reporters found bodies crumpled outside some of those doors and scattered elsewhere on the lower floors of the stairwells. Back in the studio, using the laptop computers that still had power, the three teams did their best to download their pictures to memory sticks and write up their observations. The anchor desk was converted into a communal workspace where the reporters could compare notes and help each other with the writing. It wasn't until nearly dawn that Morgan remembered she had promised she would check on Stan. Her cameraman and Phil King were still locked in the station manager's office and nobody had checked on them during the hours the reporters had been out of the building. Quietly, she excused herself from the gathering in the dark studio and found Larry in the conference room with Rhonda. She didn't ask, but simply demanded the key to his office, and he relinquished it without too much fuss. When she opened the door, it was still dark outside. She could see through the expansive windows that the light of a new day had reduced the sky to just a few stars, and the blue-gray above the Wasatch told her that dawn was not far off. Phil King was sleeping on the floor under the windows, and she could see Stan's outline on the couch against the far wall. Stan, she whispered, leaning down and touching his hand gently. But the hand was still and cold. She gasped and then shook her friend more vigorously. But she already knew the truth. 
Sometime in the last few hours, Stan Kirchner, her loyal cameraman, had died. As she looked upon the cold gray of his face, Morgan wondered if he had died from his grief after killing the intern as much as from his gunshot wound. But the couch was soaked in blood, and the smell of it was rank and coppery. The bandage had done little good, and Stan had not bothered to alert anyone that he was bleeding to death. Perhaps, Morgan thought, he died of despair. I'm afraid he won't be the last. She stayed with his body as the sky brightened and watched the light slowly paint his gray and sallow features. Eventually, just before the sun crested the Wasatch, she left him there. She did not wake up Phil. She just quietly stood and then left the room, locking the door behind her. When the sun finally came up on this, the first dawn of the city's nightmare, the news team could finally see the extent of the devastation that had been visited upon Salt Lake overnight. From their high windows in the conference room, the newsroom staff had an unimpeded view into the streets and distant neighborhoods that surrounded the downtown cluster. The broad avenues were mostly empty now, as if the entire business district had been evacuated. The fires still glowing in the distance were revealed to be just the beginning of the devastation, and even from their vantage point on the 21st floor, the bodies in the streets could be seen, scattered like dolls up and down the pavement and sidewalks in every direction. Shortly after dawn, Larry Wiggins asked everyone on the floor to gather with them in the conference room, and Morgan wasn't surprised to find that they fit easily. Many people had fled the night before, and their numbers had been whittled down further when two of the reporting teams had failed to return. They now numbered less than a dozen, and that included both reporters and anchors, such as herself, Brenda and Buck, as well as Rhonda, Larry Wiggins, a few office staff, and even the commissary worker who had dressed Stan's wounds the night before. When they were all together, Morgan quietly told them of Stan's passing, and there was a moment of silence to remember him. Ten minutes later, they were all still in the conference room, looking out over the scene of devastation before them. Almost no one spoke, and when someone did, it was in a voice no louder than a whisper. The silence in the room was almost painful. Morgan felt a hand on her arm, and she turned to see Rhonda. The older woman's face looked almost ancient now with sadness and fear. But when she leaned into Morgan, her voice was strong. I feel like we're a pack of squirrels that have been chased up a tree, Rhonda whispered. I know, Morgan whispered back. I just hope whatever is hunting us hasn't learned how to climb.
You're listening to The Last Handful of Clover, a novel by Wes Mongo Jolly. If you're enjoying this audiobook, please consider supporting the author on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash wesmongojolly. And for more information, check out the author's website at wesmongojolly.com. That's W-E-S-S-M-O-N-G-O-J-O-L-L-E-Y.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.